0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science, a special series of the New Books Network on the New Books in Political Science channel. I'm Nick Cheeseman, a fellow at the Australian National University and host of the series. In this, our eighth episode, we feature another exemplary empirical inquiry using interpretive methods gendered citizenship. Understanding Gendered Violence in Democratic India, published in 2019 by Oxford University Press and the recipient of the Lee Ann Fucci Award for Innovation in the Interpretive Study of Political Violence, awarded by the Interpretive Methodologies and Methods Group of the American Political Science Association. Its author is Natasha Bell, an associate professor in the School of Social and Behavioral Sciences at Arizona State University. Natasha, thanks for joining us and congratulations on the outstanding award.
1: Thank you so much for having me, it's an honor.
0: Natasha, I'd like to begin, if you don't mind, at the end of the book and then move to the beginning of it. At the end, you talk about an experience in Punjab Northern India in 2005 that sounds like it was formative in the early thinking that you had that led to the research on which the book is based. What was that experience and how did it prompt your thinking?
1: The ethnographic research and the interviews that inform this book were carried out over multiple trips to Punjab. In 2005, during one of these trips, what began as an intellectual exercise transformed into a deeply personal experience when Biji, my paternal grandmother who was in Punjab at the time, passed away. In the concluding chapter of the book, I share how in this moment, The very gendered norms that I was studying were operating on my very body during this moment of grief and pain. And what I'll do for the listeners is to read a passage um, that captures this moment and talk a bit about why it was so important to me. When BG was alive, she referred to me as her beloved child. But after she passed at the public cremation ground, I was perceived as her granddaughter, a gendered identity. At the cremation ground, we said our final goodbyes to Biji while listening to Sikh scripture. And then Biji was moved to the funeral pyre. Without much thought, I followed Biji. Within minutes of reaching the funeral pyre, Gupta uncle, a family friend, kindly said in English, it isn't appropriate for you to be here. As I looked around, I realized that I was the only woman among a large crowd of men. In response, I said in English, I would like to stay with Biji. He repeated his request again, and I refused again. As I tried to move closer to Biji, I was forcibly restrained. An older woman grabbed me and pulled me from the location of the funeral pyre. She repeatedly stated in Punjabi, You will cause harm by being here. Your presence is inauspicious. As she dragged me away from Biji, I stated in Punjabi, The harm has already occurred. BG is dead. I struggled and repeatedly called for my father's help when an unknown man stepped forward, freed me from the older woman's grasp and permitted me to participate. I share this passage because it shows how my gender limited my mobility and marked me as other within the sick cremation rites. It shows how my gender determined my vulnerability to physical violence, as well as my inclusion in a public space in a religious space. In the book, I put my experience in direct conversation with the brutal gang rape and murder of Jyoti Singh and with ethnographic data from the Sikh community. I do this for many reasons. I want to call attention to the dangers that lurk in every case of sexual and gender-based violence, from its most extraordinary and horrific expression to the more mundane expressions and at one end of the spectrum is violent sexual assault. At the other end are gendered norms that determine access to food, healthcare, education, inheritance, and property rights. And what I try to do in the book is to call attention to the similar logics at play across the entirety of this continuum. Jyoti Singh's murder haunts the book. It functions as a reminder of the seriousness of gendered citizenship. But most of the book actually focuses on the other end of the spectrum by investigating why women's lives are potentially at fatal risk in public sites and in the private space of the home. I highlight the everydayness of gendered violence across both public and private spheres. I show how women are always potentially at risk of violence in all these spaces. There is no space where they are free from violence. And what I find is that gendered violence, compounded by intersecting categories like caste, religion, class, and sexuality, is used to control women's bodies, to limit their democratic participation, and to police them in civil society, religious community, and home. Gendered violence undermines the promise of democratic equality, it puts women's lives at risk, and it causes them to be second-class citizens. I also want to call attention to the fact that as researchers, we aren't somehow outside the research process. We aren't neutral observers. Given this fact, what is required is an attentiveness to the politics of knowledge production at every step of the process. What is required is self reflexivity about how power operates within and across epistemic communities. And I want to share a little bit about my own kind of positionality and situate myself in the research process. I'm trained as a political scientist, yet I function on the margins of this discipline. My epistemological and methodological choices often challenge dominant paradigms in political science. My embodied positionality as a woman of color also challenges prevailing gendered and racialized norms in political science about who is a legitimate knowledge producer, who is a competent teacher, and who's authorized to speak and write. Given both my epistemological and methodological choices and my embodied positionality, I write from the margins of political science a place of political possibility, and yet also a place of pain and isolation. In the concluding chapter where you began the questions, I try to give voice to some of this pain and isolation. I reflect on my power and privilege in the research process while also revealing how others enjoyed and continue to enjoy power over me, both in the field in Punjab and in the discipline of political science
0: well there's so much there to work with Uh, let me start then with the questions of method because you say from the outset that you're interested to do work in an interpretivist tradition, and you alluded there to your own positionality, to the self-reflexivity that you bring to your research project, uh, to the embodied quality of the work that you're doing. How then did that inform the way that you went about approaching conceptualizing and articulating gendered citizenship and, relatedly, the central concepts that you work with throughout the text, which is situated citizenship.
1: Often, we assume that citizenship is a neutral and universal concept determined by constitutions and laws. We assume that citizenship is a a legal status, and once this legal status is achieved, then all citizens enjoy equality. My book challenges this kind of thinking. I argue that legal approaches to citizenship are insufficient. Such approaches overlook the complex daily lived experience of citizenship. These approaches ignore the fact that citizenship is experienced unequally depending on intersecting forms of difference such as caste, class, race, religion, gender, and sexuality. In response, I advance what I call situated citizenship, which is both a theory and methodology to understand the contradictory nature of democracy and the unequal experience of citizenship. I call for an understanding of citizenship as both legal status and embodied social relation. As legal status, situated citizenship requires an analysis of citizens' access to civil, political, and social rights. As an embodied social relation, situated citizenship asks how power relations affect citizens' standing in all domains, from the privacy of the home to the institutions of government. As a methodological approach, situated citizenship requires sensitivity to embodied lived experience, meaning-making processes, and self-reflexivity. It expands the existing methods of studying citizenship to include interpretive approaches. And lastly, it requires that as researchers, we be situated within local context to understand citizenship. Situated citizenship doesn't assume equality as the starting point. Rather, it explores how supposedly equal citizens experience the promises of equality in all spheres of life. And I advance this approach because... It expands the focus beyond the state to directly examining social relations in multiple domains in an effort to determine who is included and to what extent. It makes gender central to the political analysis while also being sensitive to embodied intersections between gender and other categories of difference. And it expands the focus of political science beyond abstract formal equality two relations of power, which make visible exclusionary inclusion.
0: You've just mentioned one other key term that you use throughout the text, exclusionary inclusion. So I'd invite you to expand on that before we continue.
1: I developed the concept of exclusionary inclusion to capture the contradictory experience of democracy in all spheres of life. These contradictions reinforce an unequal democratic experience, but they can also renegotiate that unevenness and even challenge it. Exclusionary inclusion refers to a range of practices, legal, institutional, ideological, material, and embodied practices that cause limited membership in different domains. Exclusionary inclusion allows different entities to minimize their own participation in discrimination while advancing other interests over equality. Here, I have in mind other interests such as majority group domination, religious autonomy, minority rights, family values, national security, national unity, and so on. Exclusionary inclusion often operates in a reinforcing fashion across different sites, and yet these sites are independent of one another. As a result, we can't assume that social relations are experienced uniformly across these different domains. In fact, this is an open empirical question, one I set out to explore in the book. The book offers an examination of Indian citizenship that weaves together an analysis of sexual violence law with an in-depth ethnography of the Sikh community in Punjab. Through a situated analysis of citizenship, I upend long-standing academic assumptions about democracy, citizenship, religion, and gender. I reveal that religious spaces can be sites for renegotiating democratic participation. I show how some women engage in religious community in unexpected ways to link gender equality and religious freedom as shared goals. The book explains why the promise of democratic equality remains unrealized and identifies potential practices that can create more egalitarian relations. And what I do in each chapter of the book is to explore the potential for liberatory politics across different sites, including the state and law, civil society, religious community, and home. This exploration culminates with an examination of Sikh women's participation in devotional organizations to show how situated citizenship can expand the very meaning of citizenship. I demonstrate how situated citizenship moves us beyond narrow definitions of the political focused on state and government, and how it moves us beyond Western notions of citizenship, which assume that strong religious ties are antithetical to modern citizenship. Each chapter of the book maps the mechanisms of exclusionary inclusion across different domains, and I show how similar norms are actually operating in state-citizen relations, and in interpersonal, religious, and kinship relations to justify and normalize gendered violence.
0: That's tremendous. So take us into your field sites now, and please introduce us to the location, the period in which you did the research, and then what are some of the features of the site that informed the work that you did as an interpretivist scholar that you want to draw our listeners' attention to?
1: So the fieldwork was carried out over multiple trips to Punjab between 2000 and 2010. And during this time, I engaged in extended participant observation, sustained immersion, and in-depth semi-structured interviews. I conducted two sets of semi-structured in-depth interviews based on snowball sampling. One was during the winter of uh, 2003-2004 with 30 female politicians in Mohali District, and the other during 2009 with 40 research participants, men and women, in Mohalle and Amrasat districts.
0: So that gives us the sense of the period and the location in which you did the work. Now, you yourself have family ties and connections in those areas that precede the work that you conducted as a researcher. So... How did those prior connections inform how you went about designing and conducting the research? And perhaps we can, we can go into the home first of all with the fourth chapter and then wind our way back from there to some of the theoretical and methodological considerations that you touched on at the outset, because I'd like to come back to them. But it'd be lovely, I think, to get a, a sense of the kinds of interactions that you had, who were your interlocutors, how did you go about reaching out to them, and uh, something of the quality of the conversations that you had that comes out so evocatively in those chapters of the book.
1: I'm happy that you raise my family and the connections that I have to the community prior to conducting the research. Part of what we don't often talk about when it comes to This kind of methodology is how we're trained and who does the training. And much of my training occurred not in political science, but actually outside of the discipline of political science. And I say this in the acknowledgement of the book, but it isn't something that I often talk about publicly because it's not seen as valid, right? But my grandmother and my mother have been central to my understanding of the Sikh community and They've helped me cultivate the sensibility, the religious, linguistic, cultural sensibility that allowed for this research to actually occur. And it was my relations with my family that uh, made the research possible because the research participants could place me. They knew what family I belonged to, what community I belonged to. After I left, right there was still a way to find me and ties that connected me to the community. And with that comes a degree of trust, but also there comes um, uh, certain kinds of burdens as well. But I, I am grateful to both my family and my community for making this research possible.
0: And you say that not only did it inform your thinking about the project, but also it has implications, of course, for access. You say that in some cases, your positionality and your relations with people there gave access. And in other cases, it closed off access to research situations. Could you illustrate and Let me add a second point there as well, by way of a counterfactual. How might the research on this topic have been different if you had been gendered differently yourself?
1: So in the field in Punjab, I was reminded that I don't fully belong and that I am at risk of violence through sexual harassment, through the questioning of my religiosity, and then through stereotypes about my diasporic identity. As a perceived insider, some research participants found me to be lacking in my adherence to a Sikh way of life, while others saw me as a girl, not as a woman, as a layperson, not as a scholar. And I want to share one research participant's words with you, so you get a sense of this experience and and my interaction with her. Binakor, a sixty five year old upper caste woman characterized me as a shameful Sikh woman because I failed to meet the standards of proper Sikh attire. Gore explained to me that Sikh women nowadays have abandoned modest attire in favor of what she calls shameless attire, while men have become hunters. After expressing her views, Gore said to me, please don't take offense, but look at your sleeves. I was wearing a traditional salwar kameez with short sleeves and my dupatta was around my neck, not on my head. Kaur saw me as a shameless sick woman who deserved to be hunted as a sexual object. According to her, I was available for the hunt, available for violent mistreatment because of my immodest attire. As a perceived insider, I found myself in a vulnerable position because my positionality may have led to more trust and resulted in more complete responses to difficult questions, but it also exposed me to gender norms that are used to justify sexual harassment and violence against women. But I also want to acknowledge my privilege in this situation. I had the power to exit. I could and did return to my privileged life in the first world where I enjoy the power to narrate this story, where i enjoy the resources required for academic self-reflection.
0: So you touch very well there on the met- some of the methodological considerations and also i think open up the opportunity for us to discuss a little more about the theoretical work you're doing with situated citizenship because you spoke at the outset of the interview about situated citizenship as a bodily experience. And there you illustrate the point powerfully by attending to dress. And this gets at, if I understand correctly, what you're doing with the ethnographic chapters, particularly the first of the two ethnographic chapters, when you work through how your interlocutors at once challenge but also naturalize exclusionary inclusion. I suppose my question relates to how you as an ethnographer work through the intersubjective meaning-making in that moment to an account of citizenship, which is at one level sympathetic to and attentive to the claims that sick women are making, but at the same time recognizes that there are qualities also to those claims which might simultaneously undermine or contain those claims, that there's a conservatism to that outlook. We might say, well, isn't that a simply a conservative mode of accounting for dress and what more can one do with it? And yet you do a great deal more with it in the book. So I'd like to open up that part of the book for a conversation now.
1: This is something that... I often struggled with and tried to be very attentive to, but often devout women, it's it's assumed that they they don't have right political agency or that what they're doing is anti-feminist or it's apolitical at best and that they're willing participants in their own subordination. And I wanted to be more attentive to the political agency of this group of women, of this group of devout women, and recognize the contradictions in what they were doing and saying, but also being open to learning from them and acknowledging when their understanding of mukti or liberation in a religious sense aligned with gender based liberation. And so that was key for me. And so let me kind of give you one example of the contradiction that I would often see and that I try to describe in the book and to really dwell in rather than dismiss. When asked about women's place in Sikhism, one research participant responds by directly citing Sikh scripture that denounces notions of female inferiority and impurity. She claims that women have a place of value and honor in the Sikh community. And yet, within minutes, she describes women as deplorable and impure beings who are insects among insects, who are unworthy of social and political value. In the book, I dwell in these kinds of contradictions. I ask, how do individuals experience and make sense of gender-based discrimination and violence in a community that often denies its very existence? And I demonstrate that a majority of research participants explain the structural position of sick women through a series of gendered norms that minimize their own participation in discriminatory practices while naturalizing gendered citizenship. And in shedding light on these kind of often overlooked contradictions and their consequences at multiple levels, right? From the home to the institutions of government I begin to get at one of, I think, the most puzzling experiences in democracies worldwide. Why is legal equality often insufficient to realize true democratic equality?
0: The rejoinder to that may be for an uncharitable reader or listener, may be that, well, in no formal constitutional order does the work that it claims to do. Then- there is, of course, as you point out very well, a tendency, although this isn't your terminology, but let me use it to fetishize constitutions in some countries. The United States is a special case in point and some disciplines as well that you point to. And even the author of the Indian constitution himself, about as, you, as you know, you're far from uncritically celebrating his creation on the very occasion of national independence, said that India was entering into a life of contradictions. How would you respond to the critic who had Say, well, aren't you just pointing to the obvious?
1: Perhaps, yes, I'm pointing to the obvious, but unfortunately, I think when we look to how knowledge is produced in political science, the presence of a constitution, the presence of equality clauses, the presence of women in legislatures, these are seen as sufficient to mark a country, right, democratic, to determine that, right, women are included in that democracy, and what that means is that we, as a discipline, overlook how exclusion operates, right, how gendered violence operates in democratic societies it's not an aberration it's only an aberration if we assume right that somehow the clause alone in the constitution is sufficient to solving the problem
0: and India seems to be a particularly a fecund case in point because, as you note in the book, India does particularly well on one dimensional indicators on gender equality that are used to measure citizenship outcomes. And yet, of course, your observations from your fieldwork tell an altogether different story. There's also the issue of gender blindness that you point to in the extant literature. I'm not sure if you'd like to add anything on that aspect of the uh, topic before we go to the break?
1: I can add to that, especially around the question of, of kind of the democratization literature, because initially I turned to mainstream democratization literature to make sense of women's lived experience of Indian democracy. But in reviewing this literature, I found it to be part of the problem as it reproduces and legitimizes gender blindness by failing to incorporate decades of feminist and critical scholarship. Democratization scholars continue to omit gender in their definitions, measurements, and operationalization of democracy. This continued omission of women biases our understanding of the origins, causes, and history of democracy, and it ignores gendered violence in democratic societies. In the book, I ask, How can researchers rely on such measures to make sense of women's democratic inclusion if these very measures conclude that countries are democratic when women are not permitted to vote? So just stop and think about that. The measure determines that the country is democratic when women are not permitted to vote. They don't even enjoy formal equality And so what I argue is that institutional indicators and formal rights fail to tell the full story. And I develop a theory and methodology of situated citizenship to explain how uneven and unequal experiences of citizenship are created, maintained, and challenged in the private and public spheres through concrete face-to-face social practices that are often compounded by intersecting categories like gender, caste, class, religion, and nation.
0: Natasha, let's pause for a moment and pick up there when we come back with more discussion on the critique that you offer of the extant literature, the methods that you adopted, and perhaps some advice that you may have, if I can ask you for it, for graduate students and emerging scholars who might be interested to do similar kinds of research as you have done. Welcome back to New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science with me, Nick Cheeseman, in conversation with Natasha Bell on her gendered citizenship. Natasha Returning to the argument of the book, you say that your field work upends assumptions about the relation between citizenship and secular versus religious spaces in India. How so?
1: So I do this work in Chapter 5 of the book, which examines Sikh women's participation in all female Sukhmani Seva societies or devotional organizations. And I think this is the most kind of creative and innovative chapter in the book. So let me share with you a a little bit about that chapter. Some scholars assume that strong religious ties are antithetical to modern citizenship. Others assume that state-citizen relations are democratic and religious relations are non-democratic. Still, others assume that the liberal state protects women through law while religious communities subordinate women through traditional practice. In chapter 5, I upend these assumptions. The chapter asks, can Sikh women move beyond prescribed gender roles through their participation in Sukmani Seva societies? Do Sikh women experience devotional organizations as sites of liberatory politics? In the chapter, I put intersectionality studies in conversation with scholarship on women's religious agency to open up more diverse understandings of agency and liberation. I find that some Sikh women create more egalitarian relations by contingently aligning two distinct definitions of liberation, spiritual and gender-based liberation. Sukhmani Seva societies rarely engage in formal politics. As a result, it would be easy to understand these women's actions as apolitical. This would be a mistake. Sukhmani Seva societies also rarely engage in feminist struggles. As a result, it would be easy to understand these women's actions as anti-feminist. Again, this would be a mistake. What's required is a more expansive definition of the political, to understand that religious affiliations can be a means for enacting citizenship in a liberal democracy. What is also required is a rethinking of the feminist subject to understand that religiosity can be a means for attaining gender-based liberation.
0: Can you illustrate then how citizenship is, through devotional acts of the sort that you're describing in that chapter, enacted?
1: Through a close reading of interview responses and ethnographic data, I uncover forms of democratic action that are often overlooked. I find that women whose political action is deeply constrained by gendered norms and gendered violence are in fact producing and co-creating public and associational life with other women across lines of difference. These women gain access to public spaces, build solidarities across differences, and create more egalitarian relations. The Sukhmani Seva societies, founded and run by women, provide civic and public services, medical services, infrastructure improvements, and social assistance. And I read these devotional acts as citizenship acts because these women are entering civic and associational life, They are exercising their freedom of association and travel. They are placing women in a position of honor at the center of devotional life. And they are opening up the possibility of significant transformation of gender norms and gender roles. And these citizenship acts are not only significant in their enactment, but in the fact that they contain the potential for wider kinds of political action and change.
0: I want to return with those observations to some of the remarks that you made in the first half of the interview about the existing literature. And you pointed out some of the limitations in American political scientific literature, particularly in democratization studies. I'm wondering about the affinity of your work with some scholarship in political theory like that of Sheila Benhabib on cosmopolitanism or Etienne Balabar's conception of citizenship, do you see that that you're working towards an articulation of situated citizenship that might be sympathetic to the kinds of work that they and others do in a political theoretic mode?
1: Yes, I do. So I want to talk a little bit about political theory, if that's okay. Often, right, we think of theory as this kind of abstract intellectual pursuit right something done in isolation without data and something done with thinkers often white male thinkers and i'm not immune to that kind of thinking right and i've often described my research as theoretically informed empirical research however i've struggled to call my research empirically grounded theory It's taken me a long time to even say those words out loud. And I've had to think about it and and shift my understanding of theory. And what if we understood theory as explanation and meaning making? And for me, the analysis of the co-generated data, the process of contextual meaning making and the relational embodied practices all lead to theory, because I think they are theory. And sometimes I think we create this kind of false divide between data and theory, between kind of method and theory. And the analysis of the data, I think, leads to that theory, that meaning making process leads to the theory. And it's something that I only now with the book completed. Am I able to say that out loud? And it's taken me a while to lay some claim to that space. Whereas the empirical space, it's been easier for me to say that my research is theoretically informed empirical research. But I've struggled to say that this is grounded theory.
0: Well, I want to applaud you for saying that out loud and for thinking through perhaps into the next stages of your research along those lines. Uh, For many years, of course, uh, Kristen Munro has written on the category of empirical political theory. And I think perhaps it's a category that we need to revisit more deliberately in conversation among interpretivist political scientists. And your book really presents a wonderful opportunity to do so. So thank you for writing it and, and attending to situated citizenship, both in its theoretical and methodological significance. One reviewer of the book did remark that while well, your critique was persuasive from their point of view insofar as the literature of the North American Academy is concerned, that it seemed to neglect emerging research on politics and political science in India itself and some of the literature and postcolonial studies, like that of Pata Chatterjee, uh, the work on structural violence in India of Akil Gupta, among others with whom you might have engaged. How do you respond to that observation?
1: The critique is spot on. I did not adequately engage these texts and many others from the global south and there is a tension in what I aspired to do in the book and what I was able to do, especially when it comes to the engagement with Indian scholars. But there's a reason for this. It isn't something we often talk about, but I think it's important to say it out loud. I've had to be really careful about how I conduct my research and what scholars I engage with in my research, given both my epistemological and methodological choices, and in my embodied positionality. I've had certain fears about the project and about securing a place in the field of political science. I'm studying minority Sikh women who don't count as legitimate subjects of study in many fields of study, including South Asian studies, Indian studies, post-colonial studies, right, where their experiences largely overlooked. The Sikh community is seen by many scholars of India as a, as a peasant community that isn't worthy of study. It's a community that's often characterized as lacking a history, politics, language, or culture worthy of study. Then on top of that, I'm doing this work in political science using methods that are understood as unscientific and invalid. And we often think of the writing of these books as an abstract intellectual exercise, that we do solely in the pursuit of knowledge. But this isn't the full story. The rest of the story is that I was trying to get tenure at an American university in a hostile discipline as a woman of color, as a child of authorized immigrants from Punjab, India, as a member of a minority religious community. In the writing of the book, I had to make strategic decisions about what scholars to engage with, With every citation, I was building my argument and providing evidence while also thinking about how do I prove that I am a political scientist who deserves tenure at an American university. With every citation, I was also trying to recognize and give back to feminist, anti-racist, decolonial, and interpretivist communities in the U.S., the very communities that created a space for a scholar like me the very communities that see value in my research. The book is not simply an intellectual exercise. It also secured my material safety and well-being, my family's well-being. It secured my lifetime appointment. I was fearful that I was already on the margins of this discipline, given the topic of the book, given the methodology, given the critiques of mainstream political science. And this is what we don't often talk about, right? When we talk about the politics of knowledge production, there are constraints on us that we don't often discuss or say out loud.
0: You're right. And thank you uh, for being so frank, for such an honest answer. And indeed, in the conclusion of the book, you have very honest, refreshingly honest, and frank words along these lines as well, where you remark that uh, you were met with hostility at various times in the American Academy, if I understand correctly, You're, you're referring specifically to your campus and other parts of the American Academy. You were told as a graduate student that, quote, what you are doing isn't political science, that you won't finish the PhD, you won't get an academic job. What words of advice would you have to graduate students who are in that situation right now that you were just a few years ago?
1: As a graduate student conducting ethnographic research on citizenship in India, I was often asked about the relationship between my independent and dependent variables, about the measurement and operationalization of my variables, to identify my testable hypotheses, and so on. I struggled to provide coherent answers because I did not understand then what I understand now. I was being judged by an evaluative criterion that did not match my epistemological methodology logical approaches, and evaluative criterion that was seemingly being imposed on the entire field of political science. I was being forced to pick generalizability over contextuality, predictive explanation over contextual understanding, reliability and replicability over transparency and reflexivity. Now I can see and understand how power operates within epistemic communities I am now in a position to see and understand racial, gendered, and epistemic violence and how it operates in the field and in the discipline of political science. In published essays, I use an autoethnographic voice to show how epistemic silencing works, how self-censorship operates, and I try to engage in a kind of epistemic resistance from within political science. I try to situate myself in the research process and allow readers to determine the trustworthiness of my claims to knowledge. The advice I have for graduate students is to learn about the experience of those who have come before, of women of color, and of other marginalized people in academia. Part of what I do in my teaching and mentorship is to reveal to students and to kind of confirm for them their own lived experience, that the academy is raced and gendered. I also share the isolation and pain that comes from being on the margins. I urge graduate students to build community, community that's centered on mutual respect, trust and solidarity as an alternative way of relating in hierarchical institutions. This work is difficult, but it has sustained me in this profession and it might sustain others.
0: And everything you just said resonates so powerfully with and reminds me so much of the work of our dear colleague, Lian Fuji, who was such a strong advocate for a transformation of the discipline, a revolution in the discipline of the sort that I I hear you calling for as well.
1: A force of nature in our
0: discipline. Yes, (laughs) very well put. Can I... Bring us back to India before we close, because citizenship there has in recent times really been at the center of debates in a way that it wasn't when you were doing your fieldwork with the passing in 2019 of an amendment to the citizenship law, which is openly anti-Muslim, that arguably for the first time citizenship law has a deliberately religious component in it, an amendment which has um, real implications for how people understand the category of citizenship and goes to the kinds of questions, the criticisms that you're raising around the relationship between law, citizenship, lived bodily experience and violence in India. What reflections would you have from your experience um, with regards to these recent uh, developments? And do you think there are contents of your book that are helpful for people who are trying to think through recent changes in the conditions of citizenship in India?
1: Thank you for raising the question because I would like to talk about the current political moment in India. Much has changed since the writing of this book. Currently, India is experiencing a democratic decline. State-sanctioned violence against minority populations is on the rise and state-sanctioned crackdown on dissent is intensifying. Since winning re-election in 2019, the BJP has passed laws that explicitly target minority communities. And as you say, one example of this occurred in December 2019 with the passage of the Citizenship Amendment Act, CAA, which is the first time that religion was used as a criterion for citizenship in Indian law. The CAA provides citizenship for persecuted Hindus, Sikhs, Buddhists, Jains, Parsis, and Christians from Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Afghanistan, but excludes Muslims. The CAA, combined with two other laws, creates the legal framework for the Indian state to deny minority Muslims their citizenship rights and to render them stateless. The outcome is an erosion of constitutional secularism and multicultural democracy in India. Modi and the BJP are driving India towards authoritarianism. Neither India's electoral and constitutional design nor its judicial and media independence have slowed India's march towards illiberalism. At the same time, right now, India's farmers are participating in the largest protest in world history. In my current writings, I'm exploring the promise of democratic equality within the Indian farmers protest. I ask, can India's farmers protect Indian democracy from a further descent to authoritarianism? Can the farmers protest slow down India's descent to towards illiberalism? And I'm really just in awe of the farmers' protest because it has created a progressive political opening. Peasant farmers and landless laborers are challenging the injustices of neoliberalism, authoritarianism, and illiberalism through the institutions of liberal democracy while providing an alternative vision of Indian democracy rooted in the radical egalitarianism of Sikhi, or the sick faith. As the BJP takes an increasingly neoliberal turn, the protesting farmers are responding by providing access to essential public services within protest camps, from libraries, schools, and medical camps to arts and music. For seven months, seven months, communal kitchens have fed hundreds of thousands of people within protest camps, helping to forge solidarities across caste, gender, religion, class, age, and language. These efforts have been sustained through seva, or service, in rural communities throughout Punjab and Haryana, where the movement began in the summer of 2020. Villages send villagers in rotating batch to the protest sites, while Sikh temples coordinate supplies for ongoing protests. Farmers are creating an alternative democracy, one that challenges the BJP's pro-corporate Hindu nationalism. And in doing so, they've transformed how we think about progressive movements in liberal democracies. They've shown us that progressive movements aren't always located in the West or amongst the urban. They've also shown us that progressive ideas are not necessarily secular. The Farmers' Protest makes visible the democratic potential of religious practice in liberal democracies.
0: So, is that going to be your next major project, or working on the Farmers' Protests, or do you have other things that you're uh, interested in right now as well?
1: With the Farmers' Protest, I kind of entered into a different kind of writing. I have now begun to engage in public scholarship in a way that I hadn't prior. And so I, I've published um, with the Washington Post and Economic and Political Weekly on the farmers' protest and its implications for Indian democracy. I'm also working on some kind of a- academic writing about the farmers' protest, and at some point would want to return to the Punjab and to to India to conduct a research on the farmers' protest. The other thing that I'm working on at the moment is a autoethnographic book on my experience of navigating academia as a raced and gendered space. I think this the book will bring together a series of essays I've written, unpublished essays, that look at my journey as an undergraduate student to my experience as a mother in academia. And I try to kind of name the harm I experienced and continue to experience while hopefully giving others a way to name some of the harm that they experience as well.
0: Both that and the other work just sound like tremendously important projects. And we have a sense indeed of um, where you're going to go with the autoethnographic text and uh, how much there will be to look forward to with that book. So, Natasha Bell, I'd like to thank you very much for talking to me today about gendered citizenship.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It has been my pleasure.
0: And listeners, if you found this episode interesting, as we hope you have, then why not check out the other episodes showcasing exemplary empirical inquiries in the New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science series. To date, we've had Lisa Waddene speak on authoritarian apprehensions, James C. Scott on Against the Grain, and Sarah Weeb on Everyday Exposure. Those interviews and the other episodes in the series so far, with Mark Beaver and Jason Blakely, Fred Schaefer, Peregrine Schwartz and Devorah and to Ari Glass and Jessica Sudergo talking about Lian Fucci's work. It's a really a, a wonderful lineup. All are on our website and wherever you get your podcasts via the New Books in Political Science channel.